This comes in, in, in some way from a children's storybook. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle is catchy. It says, every story whispers his name. So in the introduction to her Bible... Okay, I'll get, come on. I'll give you a minute to come in. Come on, come on, come on. Different day today, so it's a little different. So it's a little weird. So you don't have that first, that, that second hymn that, uh, to redeem your lateness. Holy mackerel. That's okay. Let the people come. Let the people come. There you go. All right. That's good. Come in, come in, come in. Let them come. Okay, everybody in? All right, there you go. As I was saying, a little different order of worship this morning. Based on the theme of the morning worship service, I want to take you back through. You can let people come in as I'm talking. Let them come in, let them come in. Uh, Let people... uh, uh, I, I want to um, uh, take you back through some points in Jeremiah to sum it up to get it in your heads for a longer period of time. It flows from this introduction to this uh, Jesus story book. Now, this is a children's story, so I wouldn't necessarily put it exactly this way. But she has a really nice approach uh, in her introduction. She writes, Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. Now, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story, that story with a capital S. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the Bible is... It's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And I want to do this morning for all of us is to take us back through Jeremiah one more time, four different places, four different points really, and show how these places whisper, sometimes scream, the name of Jesus. So we can pull it all the way through. Now this isn't new to us. We do this all the time. We do this every week. I sort of follow a preaching method by an old dead guy named Spurgeon who said every pastor should read his passage and then make a beeline for the cross. So we sort of do that every week. I think you know that. 
It's all about Jesus. But I want to be very intentional about that this morning. So you look in, in, your, in your bulletins, you'll see there are four different lessons. So four little mini sermons, if you will, that hopefully move us in a particular direction. I could have preached it all at once, but it seemed better to do it this way, to reflect on each point. One, this fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, Christ is our holy judge. Then the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, Christ our mediator. Then the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, Christ our king. And then the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, Christ the mediator of the new covenant. So this will move us, as our worship always does, first to think about our own sin, to confess, and then to receive assurance. We'll see how that works through this fulfillment of, of Jeremiah's prophecy by our Lord Jesus. And then we'll speak of that which is to come, that which, is, that which is, gives us hope in the context of restoration, in the context of the new covenant. So that's, that's kind of the direction, or not kind of, that is the direction for our worship this morning. So keep your bulletins handy. Pay attention. I want to begin with some passages here. Uh, from Old and New Covenant, Old and New Testament. This first from Jeremiah in chapter 2 and verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? And then in chapter 2 again, but later down, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then in chapter 52, this isn't listed in your bulletin, but I just want to read a couple of verses because this brings Jeremiah's prophecy to fruition, most especially this prophecy of judgment on Jerusalem. We've read a bit of this in a different chapter. But this chapter 52, last chapter in Jeremiah, verse 12. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to the be vine dressers and plow and plowmen. So we see all that, the sin of the people up through then this destruction of Jerusalem as God judges his people. But notice then in John in chapter 5 and verse 21, this comes from the lips of Jesus. This is Jesus speaking of himself. Indeed, the judgment of God not only is an Old Testament thing, but falls to Jesus as well. Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but gives all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into, into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is here 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And then finally this from the writing of the Apostle Paul as he writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, verse 10 of Second Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, For all we, all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As we've been reading through Jeremiah, it has been impossible to miss the theme of judgment, the judgment of God upon sin. It's simply impossible to miss it. Um, it's inescapable, this judgment. Zedekiah, who was the last king in Judah, tried to escape it, you remember. Jeremiah kept saying, no judgment, the judgment of God is coming. And it, and it came. And the Babylonians did come, as we read in chapter 52, and, and burned down the temple and burned down the city and burned down all, all, all the buildings and so forth. And Zedekiah thought he could, he could escape, but he couldn't. He got caught as well. You remember that. And we've talked about the very fact that God is love, but God is just because love is just. So God can't simply overlook sin. We think he can, we act as if he can, but, but, but really he can't. And he doesn't. And so one thing that's poignant in this prophetic word is the very nature of sin. In chapter 2, verse 5, God puts our sin in the context of intimacy, the context of relationship, the context of marriage. Sometimes we think of sin as just sort of breaking a rule, and, and that feels rather objective. Well, we just broke a rule. Sometimes we think, well, well maybe we've, we've, we've been rebellious slaves, servants of a king, and eh, that doesn't feel so bad either, but God puts it and he says, no, 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 it's like this. It's an intimate relationship, and you've rebelled, you've been unfaithful to your spouse, this one who loves you. He puts it in the context of marriage. He says it's like adultery. It's like unfaithfulness. And God speaks to the people as he talks about the sinfulness of sin, how devastating, how deep it really is. He says, it's, it's, you've hurt me. I've loved you. As a, as a loving husband loves a, a bride, as, as, as a spouse loves a spouse, you've hurt me and you've committed adultery. You've went and had an affair with another. You've been intimate with another. You've left me. You've been satisfied by another rather than been satisfied by me. And, and he puts it in that context and it digs really deep at that point, this, our sin. And God takes on himself this, this position of, of kind of the spurred, spurned or the hurt lover. And he said, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? That's the very expression that, that those who've been hurt in a relationship, those who are the, the victim of an unfaithful spouse, that's, that's often how they feel, what they, what they say. What's wrong with me that, that, that you didn't love me, that you went to find satisfaction in another? And that's God saying that of us. And when we hear that, what we should think is, what's so wrong with me that I would find satisfaction in another other than God? Why would I leave him? Why would I not trust him? Why would I not trust this one who loves me? Why would I not follow his wisdom? Why would I not obey his commands? Why would I not stay with him? Sin is devastating. 
none of that sin is, is foolish. God puts it like this, you notice in, chap- in verse 12 of chapter 2, which I read. He said, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And he says, how foolish is that? You're right here with me. I'm the fountain of living water, meaning I can give you everything that you need. And yet you left me, that sin, you left me and you built cisterns for yourself that never could hold any of that living water. And you stayed there. How foolish is that? And we have to understand that when we sin, that's exactly what we're doing. Not only are we committing spiritual adultery against this one who loves us and has been faithful to us, but also we're acting foolishly. We're going to a place that can't satisfy us. How foolish is that? And then a passage I didn't read, but I I read a few weeks ago when we were talking about The word of God being read to the king. You remember that particular king, rather than listening to the word of God, he took the scroll of Jeremiah's prophetic word that had been written down, the very word of God, and he ripped it column by column, and he threw it into the fire. So not only is sin devastating in its depth, not only is it foolish, but it's evil. The evil of having God speak to us and reject it even to the point of casting it off in the fire. But you see, Jesus comes and he's the very word of God. And so to cast him away is to do the very thing that that king did with that word. It's to take him and throw him in the fire. Dare I say crucify him. It's, it's to, to, to eliminate him from, from our lives, to turn our back on him. But you see, he's the very living word. He's the word of God. And so he also, as his father, is the judge. So to reject him is to reject God. Thus to reject him is to come under the judgment of God. To dishonor him is to dishonor God. So to dishonor him is to come under the judgment of God. And so you see, you see, he says, yes, I am the one who's come to save, but the Father has also appointed me to judge thus. Our sin is against our Lord Jesus. What I want you to do is just in the next minute or two, bow your head in our time of confession. And just spend this moment reflecting upon your own life. And if you will, just make your confession privately to God.